We've got many things coming up at Renegade University, but there's two things that are urgent right now. After May 31st, two of our upcoming webinars will increase in price dramatically. First, we have A World of Desires, Sexual Diversity in the Postmodern Age, taught by Carol Queen. After May 31st, that will go to two credits right now. You can get it for only one credit. And with that one credit, you'll also get, for free, as part of the deal, Carol's streaming video course called Sex Positivity. Jump on that now. Go to renegadeuniversity.com slash courses to see it. The other one that increases in price after May 31st is a five-part webinar taught by the great Daniel McCarthy, one of the leading scholars of conservatism in the entire United States. He will be teaching a course called Conservatism, examining the history and philosophy of a very important but grossly misunderstood political movement and ideology in the United States. Both Carol Queen's course and Dan McCarthy's course begin in late June, but again, there is a early bird sale for both. For Dan's course, it's only two credits now. After May 31st, it'll go to three credits. So again, jump on that. Go to renegadeuniversity.com slash courses. Also, we have the great Ben Burgess, famous across the internet as being the guy who will debate anyone and do it in a principled way an intellectual way, and a very intelligent way. He will be teaching how to make an argument. If you want to make an argument well in your political debates that I'm sure you're all having, take this course. That begins June 1st. It'll meet four times, four consecutive weeks. Again, go to renegadeuniversity.com courses to sign up. And then the big big upcoming event for RU is Renegade University in Texas. That'll be October 8th, 9th, and 10th in Lockhart, Texas, which is just south of Austin. We will have a lineup that many people cannot believe we put together. It includes Scott Horton, Cody Wilson, Hotep Jesus, Deirdre McCluskey, and Jack, the perfume nationalist. They will all be there for the weekend. We are already selling tickets very fast, but there are still some left over. If you want the VIP package, which, which gives you dinner and happy hour and an entire evening with me and those special guests on Friday night, get that soon because that is selling. That always sells first, and that is selling the fastest. We only have a few of those left, so get on that real fast. You'll see that on the front page of renegadeuniversity.com or go to renegadeuniversity.com slash Texas. And I hope to see you in class or in Texas. Thank you. I love advertising products that are important to me. And so I am so grateful to have Headspace as the sponsor of Unregistered. We are offering a free one-month trial to the meditation app that changed my life. In fact, it's the same one-month trial that got me started on Headspace six years ago and that I've been using in one way or another every day since. Go to headspace.com slash renegade to get your deal to start meditating 
and to change your life. Hopefully, probably, I think, the way that I did. Thank you. This is the Unregistered Podcast, and I'm Thaddeus Russell. This is a show about ideas, people, and behaviors that are considered inappropriate, out of bounds, or beyond the pale. The things you're not supposed to talk about if you're a school teacher, a college professor, a businessman, a politician, a parent, a neighbor, or even a podcast host. These are the things you're not supposed to say or even think if you're a good liberal, a good conservative, or a good citizen. Each week, I'll interview a person who has something bad to say. They might be a journalist or a professor. They might be a porn star or a drug dealer. They might just be an ordinary person with an ordinary job who doesn't care about the rules of polite society. I'm not interested in breaking the rules just to be a troublemaker. I'm interested in people who break the rules of conventional thought and to expand the scope of what is possible to say in our society. I'm interested in people who make me think. In 2016, the world learned about this thing called nationalist populism with the victory of Brexit in the United Kingdom and, of course, the election of the notorious Donald Trump. Suddenly, every American was aware of this political movement that was global. And they've been talking about it ever since. It's just that they talk about it in ways that don't help us understand what it is at all. There's no attempt to understand nationalist populism as an ideology, which it is, and it's a very coherent one, whether you like it or not. There's no attempt to understand the analysis of the dominant political structures of our time that have been made by nationalist populists like Trump, like Bannon, like Nigel Farage, They dismiss it, they mock it, but usually they just call it racist. So, for many years, I've been fascinated by this new phenomenon in world politics, which is huge. It might be roughly half the electorate buying into it. So, I needed to talk to someone who has really studied it, taken it seriously as an ideology, as a set of ideas as a political movement, as an analysis. I needed to talk, I guess, to a professor. And I found him. This is my interview with Eric Hoffman. I am joined from London, England by someone I've been wanting to talk to for quite a while. This is Eric Kaufman, who is a professor at Birkbeck College, which is part of University of London. Wait, did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 I knew that. And I used to be I used to be at the London School of Economics many, many years ago. I think it was the 19th century, which is also part of the University of London. And I still didn't know that. But anyway, Eric, uh, thanks for doing this. And um, I, I just told you before we started recording that one of the reasons that I, I'm having you on the show is that I've been watching Steve Bannon's War Room the show, which is six days a week, uh, and it, it is three hours a day, I think. I've watched 
almost all of it for the last seven months, six days a week, every day, hours a day. Me, Steve Bannon, and me. Were, he doesn't. He doesn't know this, as far as I know. Um, although, actually, a couple of people from the from the show have started paying attention to me. But um, I just find it utterly fascinating, even though like about seventy percent of the issues he and I are on polar opposites, right? We are polar opposites on those things. But I just think it's such a huge, the nationalist populist movement, which is a global movement, not just in the United States. In fact, it's kind of started, you could say, in Europe, um, is huge. And it is either ignored or so caricaturized that we don't, most Americans are not aware of how, just simply how big and important this thing is. So I was dying to have, after watching Bannon go on and on and on, you know, for months and months, I was dying to have someone on who's a scholar who studied this phenomenon, the nationalist populist movement, and had an analysis of it. And so I put out on Twitter, I don't know if you know this, this was a, about a month or two ago, I put out a, a call. I just said, hey, who's who's the smartest expert on the nationalist populist movement? And you were the clear majority winner, but the deciding vote was Daniel McCarthy. I don't know if you know who Daniel oh, McCarthy yeah, yeah. is. Of course, of course. I, I, yeah, I've met him on a few occasions. And, uh, great. And he's great. Yeah. So, he, so he's been on this show twice. He's teaching a course at my university, Renegade University, on the history of conservatism. Oh, and, and I am a huge admirer of his. And I have tremendous respect for him. Again, he's a conservative and I'm not at all. But he said, he said, by a large margin, it's White Shift by Eric Kaufman. That's the book, and that's the guy to have on your show. So that's why I invited you, and thanks for thanks, thanks. for accepting. Thanks, Matt. I'm delighted to be here, and, and, and I'll have to pay uh, Dan later, I think. <laughs> so. Cool. <laughs> whatever, you, whatever works out between you two, I don't care. Um, so I want to do – first, I want to just sort of lay out this thing that we all, are all now calling the na- the nationalist populist movement – Let's just talk about the history of it, which is a couple decades old, I guess, or maybe you want to, you might want to draw its roots earlier, but you know, certainly in the forms we know it, it's, it's a couple decades old. So let's talk about where it is, when, when it is and how big and important it is. And then we'll get into your book and all of its very interesting and unique analyses of this phenomenon. So why don't you just sketch it out for the audience? Well, yeah, I mean, I do think that it is something that's been on the rise, uh, especially recently. Now, I mean, you can right. see that it starts, I, I mean, there is Pat Buchanan, which I think is important in, in, in the U.S., um, but in, in Europe, you can see, say, um, populist right parties across seven Western European countries, Italy, Austria, France, uh, and so on. You sort of had a tripling of support for these parties between the late 1980s and 2001. That's that sort of period. And that's when, you know, you start to see, oh, Jörg Haider in, in Austria, the Freedom Party getting 27% and uh, mm-hmm. Marie Le Pen getting 18% in, in France. Numbers which, by the way, are relatively small compared to what they got recently. But at the time, this was a shock. And and, and again, yeah. when when is this? Late 90s? Um, this would be late 90s, early 2000s. Right. Um, and, and so that's sort of the first, you know, the first increase. But it's restricted to a number of countries. You know, Britain isn't involved. Germany's not involved. Sweden's not really involved. And then we get to, uh, we then have another wave, another spurt, which is post-2014. And to give some numbers on this, 
mm-hmm. um, in the European elections of 2014. This is the elections to the European Union, uh, which, of course, you could say they're expressive. They don't mean anything or they, they mean less for people's daily lives. So they're to some degree a protest vote, but they're also quite indicative of the mood of of, popular, of publics. And, and so UK Independence Party, the Danish People's Party and the Front National both hit very close to 30% of mm. the vote, which is kind of the big, the beginning of the moment that I think we're in actually. But that happens in 2014. And then okay. 2015, you get a number of things happening. Um, you know, you get the UKIP, at least in the, uh, the British elections, it does pretty well. It gets 13% in the Westminster elections, really shaping the agenda on, we want a referendum on the EU. And which is granted by Cameron's Tories and then turns into the Brexit vote in 2016, which is, mm-hmm. you know, 50, it wins by 52%. Mm-hmm. No one really predicted that, including myself. I'm not going to pretend that I predicted they'd win, but mm-hmm. 52%. And then by this time, of course, Trump has kind of won the leadership of the Republican Party and is going into that election, and then he wins. Yeah. And then you've got the migrant crisis. So the migrant crisis is is 2015 summer. By the summer of 2015, you've had the emergence of the AFD in Germany, which is on like, say, 15, 16 percent. You've got the Sweden Democrats uh, who in 2014, they got 12 and a half percent. So that was a big breakthrough with that first 2014 wave. And this is all the the migration is rising through 2014, 15. And that's very closely tracking the rise of immigration as an issue in the electorate. And that that is on the back of that, these populist parties are all rising. And it's not no longer just, uh, you know, Lega Nord in Italy and, and the Freedom Party. And, and, yeah. and it is now Sweden and Germany and Britain and all these places. And now pretty much every country except for Ireland um, has a significant populist right movement in Europe, in Western Europe. Not every country, but I mean, by and large, there's very few. Wow exceptions you know yeah. so that's kind of where this is coming from and you can definitely see in the aggregated data on voting that the far right or populist right party family has had an, an expansion and then there's eastern europe as well hungary poland uh, i think that that's related but it's it's slightly different dynamics but yeah you know it's funny as you were talking about the rise of the <laughs> the nationalist right across the world, especially Europe and here. But, you know, I was smiling and I was thinking, oh, shit, I should not be smiling now. Uh, This is this is this is the description of the rise of racism in the West, we have been told. So I shouldn't be smiling and I don't like any of this. And as I've said a zillion times, you know, the politics of these people is really truly the opposite of most of my politics. I mean, it's it's about nation. I'm an anti-nationalist. You know, I'm for open borders. They're for closed borders. And they love tradition and I don't. And, you know, the family and I don't. And religion and I don't. And I can keep going. But you know what, Eric? Uh, I will just admit that in this particular fight between them, the nationalist populists, and what are now called the globalists, I am most definitely rooting for the nationalist populists. Maybe just because I like underdogs, or maybe it's because I hate what's now called globalism. But I, I, I want them to win these fights. I don't. Do I want them to take over and define my society according to their terms? That I'm not so keen on. <laughs> but I do love that they are punching holes 
I guess I'd put it this way, punching major holes through the dominant, basically consensus idea about globalism and citizenship and the places in particular of America and the West and the world and progress and racial inclusion and diversity and all these things. This whole, what Curtis Yarvin has called the cathedral, this whole set of ideas, this whole like apparatus, this intellectual ideological apparatus, they're just kicking holes through that thing. And people like right now it's so new members of that apparatus are I think spinning their wheels trying to figure out what it is so that they can they can best defeat it. And of course they're coming up with all sorts of theories. So why don't we now talk about the various theories which people are going to be more familiar with about why this thing has happened and then let and then we'll talk about why they're all wrong except for <laughs> except for yours. So what how 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 have people tried to explain this this phenomenon, this amazing well, global political phenomenon? I mean, I think if we were to take the ones that I think are wrong, I mean, you know, <laughs> the first one is the is the economic left behind thesis that, you know, people right. lost their jobs in the, the, the high paying jobs in the industrial economy and they're pissed off against the metropolitan elites and they're sort of letting them have it. Um, I think that explains very, very little. I explains mm-hmm. it might explain why you would vote for the UK Independence Party instead of the conservative party to some degree. Uh, so for the small parties, but it, ha- it has almost no explanatory power for Brexit, Trump, any of these larger voting phenomena. Um, and so, you know, you, if you look at the survey data and you, for example, in the U.S., if you look at the Trump vote uh, by income level uh, amongst white Americans, there's essentially no relationship, no statistically really? significant relationship. Um, mm. Whereas if you were then to say, okay, what do you think about, you know, the question, um, things in America were better in the past or American culture was better in the past, you know, massive correlation with Trump okay. voting. Uh, or, or another example is um, there was a, a vote in Bavaria and the AFD did well in Bavaria. And, and there was a question asked to the, in a survey, um, do you agree with this statement? Germany is gradually losing its culture. 100% of AFD voters in that survey agree oh. with that, compared to like 20% of green voters, for example. I mean, so wow. it, the cultural side, the sense of cultural loss is, is absolutely the dominant correlate in any, any sort of rigorous analysis where you've got individual level attitudes on anything cultural, uh, mm-hmm. particularly around loss and immigration and so on, that just dominates any model. You know, mm-hmm. make America great again. Yeah, yeah. There, I think there it is, right? That's it's the yeah. nost- it's the you could call it boomer nostalgia, and in fact, <laughs> I mean well, nostalgia. It, yeah, I mean that's, but but I think it's not just you know conservatism in this in the sense that someone like a Roger Scruton or. Um, G.A. Cohen's uh, rescuing conservatism is all about attachment to things as they are, ha- as intrinsically valuable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, but, except it's also about a, a narrative in, of, of history and, and how the country is, what you knew growing up, and, and wanting that to be handed down to the next generation, and all of those sorts of things uh, are really what's driving it, I would say. Hmm. All right. Well, let's. Oh, first of all, before we move on, the AFD in Germany, I actually don't know a lot about that party. And can you, I mean, the idea of a nationalist, populist party arising in Germany, 
<laughs> makes even me a little nervous. So can you talk about that party a little bit? I just, I, I that actually, they have been, I have seen one of them on the war room on Steve Bannon's show, but that's about all I know. I don't really know what they're about and how they've been tolerated. I mean, Germany is so locked down by, you know, pro-American NATO, the consensus, right? I mean, how are the, how has that gone on? I haven't followed that story. Well, it's like, it's really no different. I mean, it's no different from any other European country that's, that's an immigration destination country in the sense that, um, you know, immigration is by far the main issue. I mean, without that issue, there'd be no significant support. I mean, AFD existed prior to the migrant crisis as a kind of Eurosceptic libertarian type party, a bit like UKIP prior to Farage, roughly, you know, so, so it was one of these parties that was essentially an economic libertarian type of party. And then the uh, migrant crisis happens. There's no, the mainstream German parties aren't really dealing with this issue. And so the the party, essentially a wing of the party that's concerned about immigration takes over. Frauke Petri comes in and makes this her signature issue. And then the support for the AFD just starts rising, uh, shooting up, right? So it sort of just captured all this energy around this migrant crisis and, and there's a million people showing up and, and all of that, you know, went into the AFD. And so um, that's really its origin. Now, of course, you've got the, the sensitivities and anxieties over the Nazi past. Absolutely. And this was one of the reasons people thought, oh, well, this could never happen in Germany. But no countries are really, except for Ireland now, and no major countries in the West, uh, Western Europe are exceptions uh, that mm. I can think of. I mean, Wallonia in Belgium maybe is kind of an exception. But so, <laughs> yeah. um, Okay, the exception that yeah. proves the rule. That's interesting. So, and, and with the AFD, you're saying that economic misfortune is not the cause of the rise of that. You just stated pretty clearly it, it was about, it was a direct response to the migration crisis, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a paper that showed how monthly refugee arrivals correlates with polling increases in the AFD. I mean, it, it's a, wow. you know, very clear. It's not, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not any mystery. And I think you'd be pretty hard pressed not to, to say, well, why is it the case this party fortunes suddenly take off during the migrant crisis. You'd have to be pretty stubborn to, I think, resist that explanation. I mean, of course, you can always, there's no, people will always say, people who want to back up the economic argument will always use a sort of geographic type of analysis where mm-hmm. the, the sort of more poor economic regions, it's a bit like in the U.S. too. Mm-hmm. They'll say, hey, look, the, the, the Trump votes higher in these depressed uh, economic regions or the uh, Front National vote is depre- you know, higher in these regions. But of course, what they're not doing is really looking at the individual level, which, you know, those regions have very few, you know, fewer young people, fewer ethnic minorities, fewer people with degrees, which largely explains why they are essentially voting as they are. But the independent effect of being depressed is quite small, from what I can tell. And, and certainly as an individual who your income level, whether you're employed or not, whether you've lost your job, none of that really makes much difference uh, mm-hmm. to whether you're likely to to vote for these parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think the, and now, of course, there is something to, again, I think it's cultural, the East German versus West German. I mean, East Germany, Eastern Europe has, you know, it's a less liberal place. The education system was not the same. Uh, the, the public culture was not the same. So you do have an East German effect, uh, but that's not, in my view, an economic effect it's much more a kind of a 
kind of Iron Curtain cultural. That's it. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you a trick question. Okay. Which is um, totally fair in academic circles. This is what we do all the time. We just ask trick questions. (laughs) And if you get it wrong, you get denied tenure. So, um, okay. I will accept provisionally that it's not, although I'm not 100% convinced, by the way, but for now, I will say, let's say it's not about economics. Okay. Could it be, and this is what I think, could it be, listen carefully, Eric. Okay. (laughs) Trick question. Could it still be about class? Uh, In other words, so the the trick part of the question, just so, you know. Yeah, yeah. Is, I mean, is that, is that class is defined both culturally and economically, right? You can be, you can right. be, you can have working class culture and be rich and vice versa. So, like rappers in the United States, they're very rich, but they're from the project. So, the culture right. they have is of the lower class, right? So, yeah. and to me, I'll just lay out my thesis. If I were to write a book, you know, and I've been saying this for a long time, to me, this is about, at least in this country, and I bet it's true in Europe, but I defer to you, of course, on this. It's been largely a civil war between those who are of college, who went to college and speak the language of humanities departments, right? Right. right? And those who are not of that world and that culture. Higher education in this in this country, I think, has defined the culture of the dominant liberal class and to me, when I look at MAGA, the Trump movement, Bannon's War Room, these are people who may have gone to those places, but they did not internalize the culture of them. And, and I think most of them simply didn't go to those places. How about that? And to me, that's a, so, so they might be like business owners who have a million dollars in the bank, but they don't, they never went to Harvard or Yale and they don't hang out with people who went to Harvard or Yale and they don't read the New York Times or the New Yorker or the financial times. And so in terms of class, economically, they're totally bourgeois and even maybe upper class, but culturally they're very, very working class. Could that be what's underneath this? I I think, yes, I I absolutely think so. Um, So the correlations all work with what you're talking about. I mean, anyone who's visited a museum yeah. You know, in these surveys is is heavily voting for remain rather than Brexit. Oh, that's so funny. That. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course. <laughs> I love that. I didn't know that. Museum goers are anti Brexit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Museum yeah. And if makes, you, makes sense. I'm sure if you kind of polled anyone in in the Museum of Metropolitan Art or you know, I mean you uh-huh. but but um huh. so so there's definitely a a status type you know, element and, and, and university is, is key to that. Um, so it, there's no question that in all these countries, Britain is the same, you know, the biggest divide is gr- graduate, non-graduate, uh, and the biggest social divide. But the, the point that I still like to make is, <laughs> you know, l- look at the Trump vote, you know, 50% of college educated whites, I believe in the last election, I could have that number slightly off, uh, voted for Trump, hmm. so so it's okay. Even though you're right, the non-college uh, group was far more likely to vote Trump than the college-educated. And I'm sure if we were to take the Ivy League 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. Which which colleges, right? You know, that's the that's the question. Yeah. So I had a look at the that there was a, a big survey of twenty thousand students, um, and mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember the share. So in the Ivy League, the Trump vote in the Ivy League was, I think it's like around ten percent versus twenty percent of Trump voters or supporters. It was like 10% in the Ivies and maybe 20 or 25 amongst the student body across the country. So, so I mean, it's considerably lower in the Ivy Leagues. Uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's definitely true. So I think there's definitely a status element to this. But I guess I'm more of a believer in the, like, a much more powerful thing would be, regardless of, you know, whether you went to the Ivy Leagues or not. I mean, within the Ivy Leagues, who are these people that are Trump supporters? You know, it, it's an interest. Now, it's a small group, but essentially, if you were to dig in there, you'd find their their views on something like the death penalty, their views on discipline and child rearing, their views on mm. uh, a lot of these things are what are known as you know mm. they're psychological. That is that, and this is fifty percent heritable. That do you prefer order? Do you see um, immigration and diversity as disorderly? Okay, a bit like a messy desk. Which, by the way. If your desk is messy, you're more likely to be liberal on immigration. But so really? all of these things are connected to <laughs> a certain psychological disposition. And then there's, and this is sort of the literature on what they call right-wing authoritarianism, which is, I think, a, a bit of an ungracious way to put it. But <laughs> people who prefer order to disorder, that's one element. And the other one is this wanting the present to be like the past, which is known as status quo conservatism. Uh, which is again another kind of psychological disposition. So these psychological dispositions are are certainly more common in the, the working class, but they are also there in highly educated people, which is the sure. kind of person who would be a Trump. You know, so, so for example, who are these fifty percent college educated whites voting Trump? Would be mm-hmm. probably people with that psychological profile. So I think the, the psychology I think matters more than education and, and class, but the class also matters. Yeah. So you take the, it, yeah. take the top three people, um, well, three of the top people in the Trump movement in the United States, Donald Trump himself, Steve, right. Steve Bannon, and Peter Navarro, who's like one of his main advisors besides Miller. I don't know. All three went to the Ivy League schools. All three. You know, Trump, Trump went to the University of Pennsylvania, Wharton, the business school there. Bannon went to Harvard. Navarro went to Harvard. Uh, did Stephen Miller go to an Ivy League? I wouldn't be surprised. He went to I – I can't remember. He might have gone to Stanford. I can't remember. Stanford. I, I think it's Stanford. It's not Ivy League. It's not Ivy League. But no, it is, it is. No, Stanford is Ivy League, of course. Culturally, it's identical to that. I never remember who's in the – because can the West Coast be in the Ivy League? I'm just like, <laughs> that's right for those who don't know eric is not one of us he's not an american he's a, he's a canadian and we're going to get into that he's even he's even less than one of us we're going to find out his very uh, mongrelized past in a minute here which is also i think very interesting okay so um can i read i want to read a couple of sentences from your book that i loved and i, and I think they kind of help illuminate a lot of what your argument is. You say, today, what we increasingly see in the West, this is fascinating, is a battle between the, quote, tribal populist right and the, quote, religious anti-racist left. The tug of war between white ethno-traditionalism and anti-racist moralism is redefining Western politics. 
So I kind of I kind of move the topic a little bit here, but the I, I love your formulation. I hadn't thought about this quite yet. Um, so on the one hand, you have what John McWhorter calls religious thinking on the left. I think that's what you're referring to. You actually yeah. quote you actually quote McWhorter. Um, and on the other hand, and it's globalist, right? Globalist and assimilationist, I suppose. But on the and it versus that is we have what you're calling the tribalist uh, populist, right? You just talk about that a little bit. That 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 seems yeah. like a really keen observation. So yeah, I think the populist voter is motiv- motivated by attachment to um, ethnicity and nationhood. So majority group ethnicity. As, as white or English or whatever, but also um, motivated by nation, which is sort of a larger concept, which is kind of the territorial political community rather than the ancestral community. But even though it's the territorial and political, which means it's not limited to one ethnic group, it's still, uh, this is what people don't always understand. It's the national identity is not just about a creed, like the American creed or, or the French republicanism, it's also consisting of, for some people, their version of national identity also includes what we would call everyday symbolism, like landscapes, sports, customs, traditions, mm-hmm. and ethnic composition. So ethnic composition doesn't mean everybody must be, you know, white to be British or American or whatever, but it would mean, well, the country had a sort of, let's say, a 75-25 mix of whatever that mix is, is something I want to sort of roughly conserve or reproduce into the future. So that's a a tradition. Now, the, the left also has a version of ancestry that it wants to reproduce, which is diversity. So ethnic, multi-ethnicity is something they value in Americanism, not just the abstract creed. They would also value ethnic diversity, whereas the Ethno-traditionalists would value the particular mix that was characteristic of the country historically to some degree, but certainly when they were growing up. And so that's what they're about. Um, And and that's kind of behind the the sort of what I would call the the sort of more tribal, wanting to recreate that social solidarity into the next generation and so on. Um, And then against that, you've got the, the, the religious, which is instead of being particularist, it's universalist. It's sort of about spreading an ideology, mm-hmm. uh, which in this case is what I call left modernism, which I'm riffing on Daniel Bell a bit there, but mm-hmm. this idea that it's not social, it's not communism, and it's not liberalism, mm-hmm. but it's a fusion of the liberal focus on identity categories with the communist focus on victimhood and oppression and, and group conflict. So these two things wow. are, are coming together in this new ideology, which which you start to see emerging kind of in the, as early as the 1910s, sort of, and then it's, in a way, but it really takes off in the 60s, uh, 1960s, and then it just expands through institutions and institution becomes the dominant and hegemonic ideology, uh, of the, certainly of the cultural elite and the elite institution. Yeah. And these things are now in, in conflict. This is actually very difficult to admit, but in my 30s, I spent 10 years doing psychoanalytic psychotherapy, and I spent in total $40,000 on it. I learned a lot about myself, about my childhood, about my parents, 
but I never felt better. In fact, it usually made me feel a lot worse. I began hearing from friends about meditation at the end of that process, but I thought it was woo-woo, new age bullshit, frankly. But a good friend of mine kept pushing me and he said, you know what, there's a really easy way to get started with meditating. And I said, what was that? He said, there's an app on your phone you can get called Headspace. He said he used it every day. He said he used the teachings in it all day, every day. And I was reluctant. I think I resisted checking it out for at least a year, but I got so desperately unhappy. This was about six, seven years ago that I finally gave in. And I saw an ad for a one month free trial to Headspace. And so I got it. And the very first time I meditated with Headspace, it was a 10 minute session, that's all. And at the end of that session, I felt as if the chemistry in my body had changed. I felt like I had changed permanently. And I did, because ever since then, I've used it on a regular basis and I've developed tools that I can use at any moment, no matter what happens in my life. Something stressful, something terrifying, something sad. I can sit, or I can lie down, or I can be walking down the street and be able to enter the present, enter my body, enter my breath, and just be here and be now. And I'm able to do that from practicing with Headspace. And every single time it works, my blood pressure goes down, my anxiety recedes, I'm able to sleep better, I'm less irritable, I'm less angry, I don't go into rages anymore. But one session meditating with Headspace at the end of it, oh, the thing I get from it more than anything, which is always surprising to people, is this tremendous feeling of pleasure. You learn to feel pleasure from where you are and what you're doing in that very moment. The things in your immediate environment become, in fact, the greatest sources of pleasure, as opposed to these abstract ideas that I'm always working with, throwing around, banging around in my head. They kind of give me pleasure, but not really that direct, visceral, almost bodily pleasure that I get from meditating, from being still, from being quiet, from being focused inwardly, from being in touch with my breath, my body, the space around me, the quality of my mind, all of it. Nothing has done more for my mental health than headspace. And that's not an exaggeration. Ask anybody who knows me. So right now, if you go to headspace.com slash renegade, you can get the exact same free one-month trial that changed my life six years ago. So again, go to headspace.com slash renegade. And I really look forward to sharing this new experience, this new feeling that I was almost unaware of called happiness. Thank you so much. I love this. Do do left modernism again. Um, okay. I love this. So 
Yeah, it's universalistic. Oh, oh, I said you said it. Um, it combined uh, something with the communist idea of victimhood. So it's like a universal, yeah. universalistic victimhood. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's so it's about you know people mistake they think identity politics. It's all about groups. Well, it's about groups for minorities. So if you're a member of a of a minority group, and initially this included Jews, for example, but the left modernists wanted you as a Jew to stick to your religion and maintain your groupishness. So they wanted identity for minorities, but their message to wasps was, uh, this is a boring culture. Uh, yeah. It was less about you've done, you know, you've sinned. It was much more about uh, you want to ban alcohol. This is like the 1920s. You're yeah. boring. You're not exciting. Whereas look at these Greeks and Jews, they are excited. So, so the idea was, be a cosmopolitan and um, turn your back on your ethnic tradition. White, that was white, the message. Yeah, white people have no culture. Right, right. So it starts off as white Protestant and then it morphs into white once you get an assimilation of, of the, the Catholics and Jews. And so, so, um, but it begins that way as, as a repudiation of your own culture, but then wanting minorities not to sort of join you, but to actually wall themselves off so you can enjoy their cultural fruits um, nice. and, and construct your own cosmopolitan pastiche nice. of an identity. That, that's me. You, d- you just described me. That's, <laughs> okay. that's, that's what I want. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, so, so are you going to be a, co- a consumer of yeah. other people's ethnicity or are yeah. you going to reproduce your own ethnicity? Right. So that's kind of, yeah. but they wanted these things, which I think are ultimately not reconcilable because you, you're essentially saying to one group ethnicity is great and valuable and you're saying to another group ethnicity is toxic and horrible oh yeah it's not a consistent position um but but that is the origins and it goes back to the 1910 yeah. but yeah then you throw in the herbert marcuse kind of uh you know marxist style reasoning about victimhood and oppression and and uh, revolution and overthrow to utopia that whole template of of mm-hmm. struggle to overthrow and of course marxism starting to fail as a sort of ideology and so the energies are going into this cultural turn mm-hmm. uh, to identity race initially race and gender and then later sexuality and, and you know right. eventually trans you know so this is kind of where we are um is is this ideology is now the logic of it is unfolding and is becoming the scale is ramping up as it gets into corporations and and what 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 yeah. to you is religious about that way of thinking? Well, okay. So uh, what's religious about it is this idea of sacred values that cannot be transgressed. In so, for example, if you insult um, a member of a, a sacralized totemic victim group, mm. uh, and that could even be criticizing a policy designed to help mm-hmm. such a victim, like critical race theory, like affirmative action, mm-hmm. then you are profaning the sacred. So it's not, it's not the question that we can, we can't take something like systemic racism and break it down and measure it and falsify it, you know, because you can't, it's like taking down, you know, did Jesus rise from the dead? Let's sit there and, and analyze that and measure it. You know, you can't, it's, it's a sacred value. So these things like McWhorter says, anything around, uh, race, which is top of the pile of these mm-hmm. sacred values, uh, more so than trans, more so, uh, so it, it occupies the top spot on the totem pole. Uh, and if you 
transgress that, it's a religious response, like excommunicate you. You must bow your head and bend the knee. And it's very kind of, it's all about the fallen, you know, white males as the fallen, and they have to redeem themselves through allyship. So it has this very religious structure, as McWhorter talks about. Um, And I actually don't think it is, uh, people say it's about identity and tribalism. Well, if it was really about just identity and tribalism, why would you get, why would feminists allow their movement to be divided by race? Like if you were really a tribal, if you believed in, in female tribalism, you would want to resist a, a black feminist say, accusing the movement of being racist. You'd say you're dividing the movement and out. Mm-hmm. So it's actually not, people will take their place in line if you're a feminist and you're white, you'll say, oh, oh yes, I will defer to a claim around racism because race mm. has a higher yep. place on the toe, I think. has a high, so, so you're – now, of course, there are feminists who really do believe in, in female tribalism and they're resisting, say, things like trans activism. Right. Um, but for the most part, people are content, I think, to take their place on the totem pole of victimhood and oppression and say, OK, I've got this many points, but I don't have as many points as this person. So And race – and race is paramount is this yes. and this to, to them and and this is this is i guess people haven't been told this who are watching this or listening to this that's kind of your argument which is that race is is paramount as opposed to economic uh anxieties or other stuff right it's that's why that's the name the name of your book is white white shift right it's about right. whiteness ideas of whiteness right so race to you concepts of race you see it as a, mostly a social construct or entirely that's really determinative here well I, I, for, for both I sides say, I, would, I would say no I, well i would say that for the majority group it's ethnicity which is about as which is a subjective belief in common ancestry i think that is the sort of okay yeah what's driving it so eastern europeans might be white but if they're coming in large numbers to britain they could also arouse an ethnic response that here's some foreignness that's like, well, like with UKIP, well, UKIP, like you, that the Brexit was largely about Eastern European immigrants, wasn't it? Or in large, well, it was, it was partly about them and it was also partly about non-European immigrants, but it was, it was about both. Uh, But it's just to say that I think the, the key concept is this idea of kind of an ethnic Englishness or, or ethnic Britishness to some degree, which was behind it. Now, in the U.S. case, the you know the 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 largest collectivity, you know, you have this white uh, group, which is a mix of people who've intermarried together across Protestant, Catholic, Jewish lines, and it, it sort of functions socially as a sort of group. I mean, it's loose, of course, but that happens to be the group in the U.S. But in in Britain, it would be more exclusive of say East European immigrants, at least in the first generation. Second generation, they're probably part of it, but the yeah. first generation, they're outsiders to it. Um, so the concept is this idea of, of majority ethnicity. Uh, now, race is related to that insofar as it's a marker of in-group or out-group. Um, so to the extent that you are perceiving your ethnic group to be a smaller share of the total population, there would be ethnic anxiety, but also to the extent you see your nation as having a certain composition, um, even if you, so what's interesting is you can see that even if you're not of the ethnic majority, so a Hispanic Trump voter who is born in the U.S., the third generation, let's say, mm-hmm. thinks of the U.S. in a certain way with a certain ethnic composition, is 
can have this ethno-traditional nationalist reaction as well. And so, so on these surveys, you can see that on a question like it's important to preserve the European Christian heritage of America, you know, you get the same share of Hispanic Trump voters saying yes to that as white Trump voters. It's not because they think they are white like the other. I mean, that's they do to some degree, but it's it's that the nation they know. Mm-hmm. Part of what makes the America they know is this ethnic composition. So that is part of what they want to kind of transmit. So it's not uh, it's not strictly about race. And I think in the future, as I mentioned in the book, you know, I think those the color side of things will blur anyway, right. and the boundaries will be much fuzzier. But I think that the ethnicity will remain underneath. It's just that it'll be more polyglot genetically, but actually the ethnicity, the subjectivity will remain important. But but whiteness is not an ethnic category. It's a racial category. Why did you call your book White Shift if you think think this is all about ethnicity? (laughs) Well, right. So it's it's partly a way of encapsulating all of these different ethnic majority and and ethno-traditional nationalist movements in an easy way. I mean, um, so it's not just about skin color, clearly Eastern European migrants in Britain. So, so, but it is about the decline of ethnic majorities as a share of the total population across the West. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and that does correlate with skin color better in a place like the US, Canada, Australia. Uh, and I think it, <sighs> Increasingly, I mean, it's it largely correlates, somewhat correlates in Europe as well. Okay. Um, so I don't think East European immigrants are, are really an issue in much of the European Union. They are to some to some degree in places like the Netherlands and Britain, but it's I think that will be less of an issue going forward. I th- actually. Um, okay, so it's ethnic ma- ethnic majority anxiety. Yeah. Right? That's for you. That's for you. The thing. It just so right. happened. The reason your book is called White Shift is that it just so happens that where this phenomenon is taking place, which is the West, American, Europe, those ethnic ethnic majorities just happen to be largely or almost entirely white, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and so it could have been, you know, if we were talking about the 1920s, it would have been, you know, Protestant shift or something. You know, yeah. right? it could be so. So the ethnic majority was defined by Protestantism in America, let's say. And, and, and in parts of the UK, the battle was Protestant versus Catholic. So that would have been the key marker. Uh, it's now much more that race is the key marker in many of these societies, even though it's not a perfect correlation. Yeah. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I, re- I, read, I read your book and uh, you make arguments, you make an argument that the way... I guess to resolve this in the best possible way is, is uh, what used to be called mongrelization, right? Uh, you, you, you like the idea or, or miscegenation, like you, right, you like, right. you like the idea or you think this will be salutary, right? That the mixing of people of different so-called races and ethnicities together is part of the solution. You have a, a your solution is, is more complicated than that, but that's part of it, right? Yeah, I mean, that's right. So so assimilation, essentially, through intermarriage. But, of course, the second part of this is, is you know, so where, where I think the liberals would have more of a problem is that I think that the 
these mixed race majorities that are going to emerge next century uh, on current projections are are likely to trace their ancestry back to the kind of majority white groups, which will form part of, of course, part of their ancestry. But that's where I think they're going to focus their collective memories and myths more rather than all of these other things that have been absorbed in. Now, and, and we can see through history, that's what's happened a lot of times in history. I mean, you think of the Jews or the Greeks, you really dig into their DNA. I mean, there's all kinds of things in there. Or if you think of the Turks, like the Turks are only probably a quarter at most, maybe, uh, Turkic from Central Asia. Right. And But that is their myth of origin for most of them, not everyone. And there's always going to be some co- competition and competing myths. Right. Just like uh, in, in Britain, there was the, the elite thought of themselves as Norman and the, this is in the 19th century, they thought of their roots as more Norman and the liberals thought of their roots as more Anglo-Saxon, who were the group that got conquered and, and were not the aristocracy. So, so you, you're probably going to have a competing kind of more multiculturalist myth of origin on the left in, in Western countries, but I would have thought that the dominant one would be the uh, the one that links back to the ethnic majority groups in mm-hmm. each country. So that's symbolically, I guess, it would be more exclusive, even if racially and genetically these are, you know, going to be mixed groups. Uh, that's sort of where I'm thinking it'll go. Well, okay, so the, the major fly in your theoretical <laughs> theoretical ointment is in the United States, at least, people who have... It's this is new, but this is this is I think pretty much universal in the United States. People who have one drop of black blood, you know, if they if in any way they can claim blackness, they do. They don't claim whiteness. So some right. person, one person with one black relative out of thousands, will claim to be black, right? And not just claim to be black but embrace it and, and shout it and cry about it and be a part of the victim group and get all right, the, right. And, but that's the thing, you know, this is, which is so funny because they will also simultaneously say how awful it is to be black yet. They choose that identity when they have the choice. Like, well, Barack Obama is a great example. Barack Obama is yeah. related to many more white people than black people and spent his childhood mostly almost entirely around white people. And his mother who raised him, you know, was white and his, he didn't know his father who was black and all that. But yet he embraced and became black. Right. And right. so, you know, they're not doing what you're hoping and expecting, which is, you know, they are they are they are continuing to they're digging into the minority identity the minority racial ethnic identity rather than saying, oh yeah, I'm American and I'm really white. Like a lot of other immigrants do. I know what you're saying. Like Jews is a classic example. The Irish before them, when they got here, they were considered not exactly white. And then, but now they are, you know, and Jews especially were considered like super not white. And now they're considered super to be white. Right. Right. And they identify and they identify themselves. This is what you're getting at. They identify themselves as white, as the, as the majority but I'm telling you, well, you know this, with mixed, I hate all these terms because they're just grotesque right. construction, whatever, mixed race people who are part black, you know, almost universally claiming to be black. Isn't that a problem for your thesis? Well, it is. I mean, it depends. So it depends on the country. Like in, in Britain, the someone who's half black, half white, it's like 
something like 80% will marry whites. Now, it's partly a fact of just it's a much smaller population. Yeah. Right? So, so I do think you could certainly see uh, the Afro-Caribbean group melting into the white group in Britain. And, and in fact, there are also descendants of, of you know, of, yeah. of Af- black people who have melted. In. I mean, so so it's certainly when you say and, melt, and when you say the U.S. When you say melted, that? when you say melted, though, do well, you, they, many generations on, you know, they've got African ancestors, but they're basically whites. Yeah, but do they identify themselves as white? Well, it, it would depend. I would suspect this is going to de- politics will be a variable. I mean, if you're yep. more conservative, so so for example, the UK Independence Party had a, it's you know, it's it's uh, immigration person. Uh, was was uh, you know somebody who was a quarter African American or something like that? Um, Wolf was his. I'm trying to remember his first name. Wolf was his last name. He had some Jewish in him too. Uh, but yeah. but he you know he kind of it didn't look that uh, black. And he's you know but he certainly would say yeah I, you know I'm I've got some African American and you know he wasn't denying it. But I don't think he's identifying as black. Yeah. And, and I think some of the data we have on certainly Hispanics, you know, third generation yes. people with Mexican background, 60% yes. of them identify as white. Yes. So I think it really isn't clear. It, it depends a lot on the individual, but if you are on the left, yeah, of course you're going to, that's, that's where you're going to go. Even if you're Elizabeth Warren and you've got, you know, whatever share, <laughs> you know what I'm Right. <laughs> But you probably have ethnic options. So I don't think the, you know, the African-American thing. But, of course, there, there's also a melting pot for, for African-Americans. So they're absorbing mixtures into their pot. And the whites are absorbing mixtures into their pot. And who knows where that goes? I mean, if these two pots start to look very similar or or for whatever reason, it's not impossible. You might there might be a fully blended sort of mestizo emerging down the line, I, I'm not sure whether that where that goes, but I don't. I think if you look at the intermarriage now and the black-white mixes, it's really increased a lot in the U.S. I mean, it was almost not pretty much non-existent after yeah. it was made legal, but that that's increased a lot. So I don't know, especially if you if the culture changed and it was less trendy to be victim. Uh, if it went more the way it was prior to the 60s, you could see people making different choices. Thanks mostly to the incredible popularity of Paloma Verde CBD products with unregistered listeners, Paloma Verde is straight blowing up right now. They have a brand new website at palomaverdecbd.com. Go check it out. It's gorgeous. They also have new products. In fact, there's one product that I've been waiting for and bugging them about for a long time, and it's finally here. It is their soft gels that are a hybrid of CBD and melatonin. This is the sleep medicine to beat all. I love it. It is also part of their new package. It's called the Sleep Pack. Sleep Package. It puts me to sleep. It's so good. No, it's so great. You get their fast-acting, high-potency tincture in the sleep package. It's my favorite product of all. You get their melatonin CBD hybrid soft gels, 25 milligrams per capsule. Amazing. And 
this thing I've talked about a lot before. I love all the Paloma Verde uh, topicals, the salves and ointments and lotions. You get in the sleep pack, you get their CBD salve. Also, you can rub on your skin and it gets into your bloodstream and everything gets better real fast. So this will help you sleep. My favorite three products at Paloma Verde have also been bundled into the unregistered combo pack known across the world, though, as the Thad Pack. Those things are the gummies. So delicious and tasty. These are like some of the best fruit-flavored soft candy you'll ever eat, but they have CBD in them. Makes you feel better. Makes your body better. Makes you happier. Also, they're regular soft gels, 25 milligrams per soft gel. I use several of these per day. Man, especially when I'm anxious or tense or having trouble sleeping, I will hit these hard. And, as I said before, they're high-potency, fast-acting tincture. Put a few drops under your tongue, and I promise you, your anxiety, your tension, your insomnia will melt away almost immediately. So again, go to PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Check out their new website. If you use the discount code Renegade, which you'd be stupid not to, you get 25% off every single product in their store. That's the deal we had when they started sponsoring us more than a year ago, and that's still the deal. Carlos and Vanessa Abelar, who run uh, run Paloma Verde, they don't back down. The unregistered combo pack is 33% off. Go to PalomaVerdeCBD.com, use the discount code Renegade, get these great deals, get some CBD and some melatonin into your body, make yourself feel better, make your life better, and damn, I thank you so much. Yeah, so when I remember when I was an undergraduate back in the 19th century, I remember (laughs) predicting that at least all of America would eventually be beige. The beige, the beige of vacation, I think, I call right. it in America. Basically, something like Barack Obama, you know, this this very hybridized type. And and I'm I don't know the numbers on this. You, I'm sure you you do know the numbers, but I mean, I have seen this at least where I've lived in the major metropolitan areas in the United States. I have seen it seems it seems to me that young people are increasingly uh, beige. <laughs> They're or <laughs> ra- racially ambiguous. Right where it's not it's not clear according to our constructed standards of race which they belong to, you know. And I I use you think that's a good thing, and I guess I do too. But it, it, what are the what do we have numbers on that for the United States? Well, yeah, I think I mean it's it's still pretty early days, I would say, um, mm-hmm. both in Britain and the U.S. But a lot of the the so-called interracial mixing is actually white Hispanic which it's not clear how interracial that necessarily is. In some cases it is, but in other cases it really won't be in any serious way. Um, But it's rising. I mean, the the projections for Britain, which which are that, you know, by 2057%, which is still pretty small, up from 2%. So I did these formal projections with a demographer, uh, be about 7% mixed race in England and Wales, and then by the end of the century, 30%. And then very quickly, it's like 2150 is 75%. And then wow. it's like 99%. So, so it really rises up this curve. And I think the U.S. is probably slightly ahead 
on that mm. just because there is a larger minority population. And so there's mathematically there's going to be more mixing. Um, so, but I, I still think it's not going to happen for a long time in any serious level. Uh, to a, so, so I, I wouldn't say the mixed race group is going to be the majority before the end of the century. I would have thought it would be into the, the next century before that happens. Okay. Um, but it but, is, but it is, it is happening and you're predicting that it will happen more and more, which seems totally, totally reasonable to me. That seems almost, yeah. right. Um, all right, let's talk about, let's talk about global demographic trends, uh, you know, and <laughs> this will, um, this is when you get into slightly scary political talk here, but so you have a map in the book in which you show birth rates by country. Right. And boy, that map was really striking to me. And it wasn't, I mean, intellectually it wasn't surprising, but I guess it was striking and how, and how stark the differences were. So, Talk about birth rates. And to me, this is for you is like undergirding like the whole phenomenon in a sense, right? It begins with the difference in birth rates among countries and then the tendency recently of people in those countries to migrate to Europe and America, right? You want to talk about that? Yeah. So um, there, there's the demographic transition, really, which is from high death rates and high birth rates canceling each other out. So your population isn't increasing because so much infant mortality, and then you, you kind of conquer the infant mortality and you have this population explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually the fertility, the birth rates fall back, and then you have this population stagnation or decline, which is sort of where the West is and East Asia is. And so, so uh, and increasingly it's spreading to places like Brazil and Iran and, and other parts of the world, uh, this, this below replacement birth rate phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, it's happening at different, everybody's at a different stage. So the West and it got there first and then East Asia. And then, um, but the last places to get there are in the tropical belt, essentially sub-Saharan Africa, sort of West Asia, like Afghanistan, Pakistan, and then um, parts of Latin America in the sort of, you know, Nicaragua, Honduras, those sorts of places that are Central America, I think, would would be the last. Although they're transitioning out of that high birth rate, uh, they're, so they're transitioning, but they've still got lots of surplus population, young, lots of young people, uh, and then those are that's the source of immigration to the right. developing world or developed world. Yeah, yeah. And so the long just even though the share of the world that's born in another country is still around three percent, it's not high. It's not much higher than it's been historically, but the proportion of the West made up of long distance migrants has sort of doubled since the 90s even. I, th- I think something like since 1990, it's, it's doubled. So, so you've had a big wow. increase in long distance um, migration, uh, mainly going to the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the backdrop, is that the world's uneven demographic transition and uneven demographic transitions lead to different nations and ethnic groups growing at different rates. And so their share of the population shifts. And in democracies, that means it affects voting. And that can lead to, it can lead to violent conflict. We've seen that in certain countries. We've seen it to some degree in Northern Ireland. Some of the 
one of the reasons the Protestants didn't want to give civil rights to Catholics is because the Catholic population was rising and they feared that they would lose control of Northern Ireland. And so they kind of dug in and then the IRA emerged. So, so that, or in, and there are other places like Lebanon, mm-hmm. the Christians went from like 50 some odd percent to 25 percent, you know, and then you had this civil war or, or Ivory Coast, something similar. So you can have violent conflict or you might just have the kinds of cultural conflicts that the U.S. had in the 19, period 1890, 1925, and is having again now, and West and Europe is as well. So anxiety over, over ethnic change, over religious change, that's driven, you know, population shifts under, underscore a lot of that. Okay. So in the West, um, and even in other parts of the world, the birth rate, according to your map that I saw, I mean, is somewhere between one and four. And what does that mean exactly? And then in, and in large parts of the sub-Saharan Africa <clears throat> and other parts of the developing world, it is five plus, as I remember. What does that mean? Well, well no, no, I'd say the West is all under two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. But yeah. I, at most four, but but generally like under two, very low. And then yeah. But then in in sub-Saharan Africa, the places you're talking about where people are coming from, the birth rates are five plus, right? And what does that but what does that mean? Per woman, per mother, per, per woman, per woman. But but it's so it's fertility rate, but That's, I would say I, I want to emphasize it's under two in the West and East Asia. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. not above two. Okay. Anywhere. Um oh, really? and so, okay. so yeah, and in in you know, if you take um Tropical Latin America, like the the Andean cone up to Central America, I mean, it's still only about three, three and a half. I'm not exactly sure of those numbers, but it's not massive. Okay. You know, but it's even that difference between three, three and a half versus one and a half is like almost twice, you know, it's a significant difference. Um, And countries send a lot of migrants, not when they're poor, but when they're middle income, when they're approaching middle income and people have the money to move. So one of the questions with, say, sub-Saharan Africa is almost the entire population doesn't have the means really to migrate long distance. So what will happen when that changes, right, is, is a question. I mean, I think actually the issue will be population pressure going to the relatively prosperous African countries like South Africa. That, oh. that will probably happen first. Um, yep. But but still, um It'll be an inter- I mean, most of it will be absorbed into these growing, sprawling cities. Uh, yeah. But that is, of course, one big question is, is, you know, these are going to be some of the largest countries like Nigeria, Congo, Ethiopia. You know, they yeah. will be bigger. I think Nigeria or sorry, which one of them? I think it's Nigeria is, is it's either bigger than Russia already. It certainly will be within a number of, of years. But, you know, demographically, these these will be sort of large countries. Yeah, I just want to sit with these numbers for a second, though, and you know, take them in. They're very striking. So, in the West, as you're saying, two and under, you know, the meaning the average woman, they take all women, even the ones. The average have, woman will bear over her lifetime. The number of children an average woman will bear over her lifetime is right under two. Under two. I can't think of an exception. Under two. I'm right. struggling. Used to be Ireland, Sweden, France were close, but they've all kind of dropped now. And there are many, and there are many countries in the in the global south. It's called where it's five or over five per there, woman. There are many, but there's there's particularly sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, it would be certainly above 
four, and in many cases it would be you know be up to seven in some cases, like wow. Niger, Mali, and, and you know the average know. the average woman has that many children right. who survive. These are children who survive, right? Well, this is uh, I mean the the I don't think that takes into account infant mortality, but the infant mortality oh. would not be a major. It's not high enough to really impact those numbers much. Okay. Um, whereas in the West, when the West went through its population boom, infant mortality was a much bigger deal. And so you had fewer surviving offspring, which was one reason why the population boom in the West was, was less pronounced right. um, than the boom that happened later in the developing parts of the world today. Right. So in the poor and brown and black countries, you just have uh, – rapidly increasing populations, populations that are growing very fast. And in the wealthy, mostly white countries, it's just the opposite. Or East Asia. The East Asians have the right. lowest. They got the lowest birth rates. So. Part, partly by force, right? <laughs> like yeah, partly, but, but mostly not by force, actually. Yeah, I mean, really? China, okay, China, yes. That's a big one. <laughs> it's a big one. But even if they hadn't had, I mean, I don't know, I still think it would have gravitated to a a very low birth rate because yeah. something about the East Asian area, they just seem to be having these really, really crazy low birth, like one, 1. 1.3, you know, one, it really low. But is that, yeah, that's even true in relatively poor Asian countries, like in Southeast Asia, right? That they have low it's, birth rate? It's rates? going that way. I mean, I don't know where, I think those countries are probably transitioning now below two, like places like Vietnam. I haven't, yeah. I'm not 100 percent on top of those numbers, but Cambodia, yeah, that's roughly where it is. Yeah, I think. Right, that's that's inexplicable. Uh, why? Because they're very similar economically to Sub-Saharan Africa, right? Cambodia, right, and Malaysia. I mean, they're very. Well, they're, they're they're they. I think they're better off, and they're certainly rising fast. They're I rising. Mean, well, so is so is so is West Africa. I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, Africa is. Um, I mean, there are some exceptions, like Black South Africans have around two. Okay. You know, I think certain places like uh, Addis Ababa, it's the capital of Ethiopia, it's around two. There are a few countries and I'm not, but, but there's a lot that are more like four. Right. And now some people are saying, well, the data is not very good and maybe it's lower. And I just, but I haven't seen any proper analysis that would show it to be lower. Yet. And birth rates correlate almost perfectly right with just wealth don't they i mean the wealthier country gets the lower the birth rates go generally speaking is that right um it's usually the, the best indicators of women's education level particularly secondary ah because because primary education isn't enough because you graduate you know primary school you're still only about 12 13 so it's not going to dent your capacity to have kids okay. whereas if you're kept in school until you're 17 uh, 16, 17, then that's going to start to cut into your, you're going to have to delay fertility. Um, oh, okay. So the secondary school is important. Well, you're also more likely to enter the workforce. Yeah, exactly. And, and it makes it harder to have children, right? Women, women who work have fewer children. Right. This right. is so feminine. Uh, so feminism would save us from this, you know, from the right. <laughs> from over, or it did right. in a sense, you know, feminism saves us from overpopulation. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's although one of here's an interesting wrinkle is that insufficient feminism can so so in a place like East Asia or Italy, the fact they're more patriarchal and women are 
I find it hard to combine a career with being a homemaker. Mm-hmm. It means the birth rate is really depressed. So they're because they're a, they're not fully feminist like Sweden, where it's okay for women to to enter the workforce and leave. Because they're a bit patriarchal, that seems like to be the worst place to be. Okay, not, if you're totally patriarchal, you're like Afghanistan, and there's high birth rates. If you're um, totally feminist, you're like Sweden, and it's it's okay. But if you're kind of like in the middle, like Japan or Korea or Italy, it's the worst. Huh? <laughs> so, because or because- the lowest birth rate. Because you have both responsibilities. You have to work and you have to raise the children and you have to take care of your husband. Is that it? Yeah. Well, basically you, um, you know, it's seen that you either got to be, you know, if you're a homemaker, you've got to prioritize the husband and iron his shirts and also be totally committed to the home sphere. And it's not kind of, it's not as acceptable to shuttle between being a a homemaker and, 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 being in the workforce uh, and that's sticky in terms of moving back and forth and keeping your job or keeping whatever status you had it's harder you know it's it'd be interesting has anyone done this study like the countries that have low birth rates also happen to be places where feminism has existed for decades now right and in some places they yeah, become, but, is that or is it economic yeah, think, or is it just economics i mean it's really hard i don't know well it's hard because, you know, on the one hand, you know, the places like East Asia, like China and, and, and places that have the lowest birth rates, I wouldn't call them feminist. I mean, I, I, I'd certainly say yeah. women working. They're kind of feminist in the sense that they are OK with women having jobs. That's it. Well, driving. De- so they're not Saudi Arabia. So, yeah, yeah, it's like de facto feminism. De yeah, facto it's a kind of feminism. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fine. That definition of feminism. Um, OK. Yeah, I think there's definitely a link, clearly. Because okay. you've got to be someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's fascinating. So, all right. So we have these demographic demographic trends, which won't be surprising to most people. We have much higher, much larger birth rates in poor countries, and then we also see, as you said, uh, this those people are tending more and more and more to migrate to the developed developed world, which maybe uh, the first stop might be you know um, Cape Town in South Africa, but eventually those people will have enough money and means to get to Europe and the United States. And they already are, but in larger numbers. So but what you're saying is that's those two things in, in combination is what's really been, that is what nationalist populism has been a response to. Right. Yeah. Yes. Essentially it's very tied to immigration rates. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. The U S is a bit more complicated, but if you take Europe, like in Britain, if you look at the immigration level in Britain from 1997, so between like the 60s and 1997, Britain accepted roughly 50,000 people a year, give or take. It was at that level. Mm-hmm. Starting in 97 with the Blair Labour government, the numbers quickly came up to 200,000. And then under David Cameron's conservatives, they were like at 300,000. Oh, man. Um and as this was number was rising, the number of people who said immigration is the most important issue facing Britain, more or less tracks it at about an 80% correlation. And then in Europe, the same thing happens, but in a tighter time frame from about 2014 to 2016, as the number of non-Europeans coming into the EU goes from like 500,000 or 600,000 in 2013 uh, to like 2.2 million in 2015, 
Mm-hmm. The number of EU citizens saying it's the number one issue facing the country just, again, tracks that and reaches 40% or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and once that happens, that what's, what's called salience, it's not attitudes to immigration, which are much more rooted in your ideology. But someone who says, do you want more or less immigration? I want less, but it's my issue number five after the economy and healthcare and whatever. As the Im- immigration numbers rise, it goes from issue number five to issue number one for a lot of these voters. Mm-hmm. And once it comes up into issue number one, two, populist parties can sort of thrive. That's kind of optimal for them to. Uh, and there's a paper that, that shows this statistically that in nine out of 10 West European countries, there was this relationship. You, you had rising numbers, rising salience, rising populist vote polling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what's behind it in Europe. Now, the U.S. is a bit trickier because you had a kind of very, because of the two-party system and the Republican Party consciously trying to downplay the issue at the federal level of immigration, they were saying, no, we've got to focus on low tax, democracy promotion, and the religious right. That was their kind of ideology. And we don't want to touch this Buchanan stuff or this Proposition 187 stuff. Well, I was going to say real quickly, I mean, the, the Bushes, both of them, uh, were very lenient on immigration compared to Republicans and, Demo- and even Democrats now. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the Republican Party, well, I was going to get to this. So, um, and I did I, were you going to finish the thought there? Well, I, just, just that, yeah, just that in the U.S., so the numbers were kind of rising through the 70s and 80s and especially in the 90s in terms of border crossing and the numbers um, yeah. you would have expected in the 90s like you would have expected the Pat Buchanan thing to really if it had followed the European pattern now of course Buchanan did do a lot better than people expected mm-hmm. uh, but he wasn't able to break through but I also think Buchanan was mixing a bunch of things he was mixing the religious right stuff with the po- national populist stuff yeah. Whereas Trump was much more national populist compared to Cruz being the religious right. right. And, you know, I think it, in the U.S. it's for whatever reason, maybe it's because the religious right kind of burst onto the scene in the 80s and 90s. And maybe it was, uh, you know, you had the Iraq war and 9-11. You had these other things which maybe were able to draw fire away from the border issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly, whenever you had something like, you know, the California Proposition 187, 59% support, all the elites opposed to it. That was kind of a straw in the wind, as, as was Buchanan. And then you had these local anti-immigration ordinances popping up, you know, starting in the mid-2000s, culminating in the Arizona bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and eventually this thing just burst onto the federal agenda through Congress and not through the Republican Party federally. But then the first the Tea Party and then especially when you had Trump, you know, kind of captured that energy and sort of focused it into a primary bid. Right. The um, here's the funniest thing in the world to me. Who are the two groups of people who are the most pro-immigration? Aside from weirdos like me, I mean, the, the big, big groups. The two groups are left-wingers who live in big cities who think communism was maybe not a terrible idea. They really have nothing good to say about capitalism. Um, and they believe that all people should be able to live wherever they want and come across the borders. And we love people, especially if they're darker skinned, yada, yada. 
them and capitalists. Of course, <laughs> right. because they want the cheap labor. Now, having listened to Steve Bannon talk about this every single day for seven months now, <clears throat> I can tell you that he, number one, uses the term working class all the time. Eric, as a, as a Canadian Brit born in Hong Kong, you don't really maybe know this. I'm sure you do. Americans, <laughs> Americans don't use that term, but Steve Bannon does. And he is full of venom and ire toward capitalists who have brought this cheap labor into this country and undercut the wages, he says, of working class. And he says black and Latinos in America. And then he gets to and have disrupted our culture. Right. Right. But it's an anti-capitalist critique and activist movement, isn't it? In part, you don't talk about capitalism too much in your book. Well, you're right that capitalism is is clearly what's attracting workers and and immigrants in. And, And certainly... Throughout history, you can go back in U.S. history, for example, and it was the business, the steamship companies and the railway companies. I mean, they, they were always the ones that were all in for more immigration. So that is a constant, and that's not really changed. Right. Um, so that is true that that's what's driving the uh, demand for immigration. But I think, I you know, if, if you were to ask me what I think is going on with Bannon, is I think that it's just more acceptable to say oh. that you're worried about wages and you're worried about Hispanics being priced out. But actually the reality is that's not what's motivating people to vote for populism. It really isn't. I mean, it's sort of a small, small, I mean, if it were true that this was about, you're worried about your wages being undercut, we would be, we should expect that poor voters would much more likely uh, to vote for Brexit and Trump and so on than, than wealthy voters. And and really when you, especially when you control for things like attitudes to, even attitudes to the death penalty, but certainly attitudes to, around immigration, it's just not the case that this matters much. Um, so I think this is partly a theory that hmm. yeah, I've heard Bannon say this, and I, I think that you see this on the right to some degree. It's simply a more respectable way of articulating okay. this grievance. But I think there have been studies that, that will show you, for example, that, you know, People with certain cultural, if you if you talk, or if you set out, for example, okay, you tell somebody the U.S. is going to lose its white majority in 2043. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think about free trade? You know, their views on free trade become more kind of anti-free trade, which is an economic thing. It's not to do with culture, but yet their economic views are shaped by their cultural views, not the reverse. And so, I think. I think in the case of Bannon is very much just a respectable way of putting it. I mean, if you if you were to just say, you know, this is about ethnic defense, this is about ethno traditional nationalism. We just want to keep the country the way it's been, which is much closer to I think the motivation level or, or motivation of the base that's voting for these parties. I just think that would be a you know he would encounter a lot more flack. Uh, and he wouldn't have this quasi respected like, oh, yeah, he's kind of a Marxist, you know. So, <laughs> um, I think, there, you know, <laughs> so, so I'm not I'm not 100 percent convinced by that working class language, although he's got a point about condescension, cultural condescension um, from the kind of coastal elites towards the culture 
not the not so much the poverty, but but about the culture of these people. I, so I think so, you I think you might be right, but I'm going to keep I'm going to keep yeah, 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 keep pushing you and challenging you because there is there is quite a bit of evidence that is contrary to your thesis. Doesn't mean you're wrong. Um, here's a big piece of evidence. You know how many of Trump's speeches have you seen? You know at at his own rallies in full in full and. Every reporter, like left liberal reporter from some major outlet who went to cover those, you know, rallies, every damn one of them reported, if they were at all honest, that most of the time, and I know this is true because I've watched them, most of what Trump talked about and still talks about is what, Eric Kaufman? Free trade, economics, right? Cap- capitalist free market trade across borders is what really seems to piss him off more than anything. Bannon is probably more worried about the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, but he hates free trade too. I'm just I'm just going by discourse, rhetoric here, you yeah. know. And that's that's and that's important evidence, right? To get to motivation now, it's super messy and of course people say what they don't believe and vice versa all the time, but you know, the guy who won, who kind of proves that this is a real phenomenon that's what he spent most of his time talking about was sending our jobs overseas and we've got to repatriate our our economy and get you know all of that get the chinese out of our economy and bring the jobs back and have everybody work in factories like they did in the 1950s in the united states right so how do how do you deal with that well it's i think the it's very similar to brexit by the way that yeah it's acceptable to talk about EU bureaucrats and sovereignty, and it's acceptable if you're going to talk about immigration, you make it about the white immigrants from Eastern Europe. Okay, that doesn't mean <laughs> that that's necessarily what's driving the vote, right? And and this is the problem: is that Trump also did say some things around, you know, he talked about the wall, building the wall. He talked about Mexicans. Now, he, I think that was a racist thing he said, but it's still. He said he talked about political correctness. Sure. He talked about shithole countries. Now, again, these are ter- a lot of these things I think are horrible. But the fact that he trampled over those norms, I think, is a much mm. more important thing for his vote than talking all this talk around free trade. Somewhat abstract, I think. I mean, yes, there is a, a view on free trade, but I think those sorts of economic views they just correlate less well i mean yeah you know you have many, a lot of people who have who share a lot of his views who would vote for bernie sanders i mean or, you know yes. i think populist left would be more receptive to, to the economic things but i just think it's it's as with britain the brexiteer saying britain will be this global unfettered global trading nation but this is not why the people of northeast england uh, voted for Brexit. They voted for Brexit so that they could control the borders. And mm-hmm. take back control meant essentially for these voters. So the top issue, if you look at, if you ask Brexit voters, what was the top issue facing the country? Like 40% said immigration. Right. You know, the economy was like two, three. I mean, it's nothing. Basically a very small issue. Um, so I just think in terms of the, the voters and what they're motivated by now, Whatever rhetoric the, the leaders are putting out there, mm-hmm. some of that's going to be shaped by what's social socially acceptable. You know, I think even a Trump, even <laughs> even a guy like Trump, <laughs> right. and certainly a Farage. I mean, they're they don't want to they don't like being. I mean, they're accused of being racist all the time, but they don't want to give that ammunition to their True. 
and they didn't really, so they have to kind of, I think they're talking about shadow, shadow things, which are not actually the mm. main concern of their base. And this actually could become a problem, by the way, if, so Boris Johnson and, and some of the more liberal people who are into this global Britain libertarian stuff, if, and they haven't actually brought immigration down, I would predict that if they keep going on saying, well, hey, we're going to make Britain a successful trading nation, and hey, we're getting all these great immigrants in from, from Asia, I think eventually that the if they're not populist enough, they're going to pay an electoral price. There will be a splinter movement. So, because really that's not where their base, the Brexit voting base was. And so I think it's a bit of a smokescreen as to, but because they have to worry about the media. I mean, who wants to get attacked relentlessly? Yeah. It's funny that you're saying that, that Donald Trump was concerned about his image in the, in the, in the West. <laughs> <Right. media. laughs> he did every, he did not a lot to help his image. In, no, no. But, um, all right. Well, here's, here's a point in your favor, I guess, although I don't know the numbers, but I'd be really surprised, you know, those Trump rallies with tens of thousands of people at them, those stadiums all across the country, right? I want to know how many people in those stadiums lost a job to a Mexican immigrant, right? Or yeah. or might or might lose or had any chance of losing a job to a Mexican immigrant, right? Had any chance of it or even in an industry that was affected by that, right? How many of them really wanted to work as a, a gardener or a, right. or a maid in, you know, in Arizona. Right. Um, I mean, do you know, I, I don't, I, yeah. well, it's certainly in the, if you take a survey and you, you ask people, have you lost your job recently? Um, <clears throat> you know, that, that should turn up. Well, you know, somebody, if somebody has lost a job and that's why they voted for Trump, then we should see a correlation between people who've lost their job versus people who have a job. Right. Or people who have high income versus low income, if right. their incomes have been competed down and or a change in their income and their likelihood of vote, voting for Trump. And we're just not that kind of evidence is not turning up. Okay. And and, and a lot of Trump's voters are pretty comfortable. Um and, huh? and it's not it's not people and some of them might be employers of, of, of a lot of Hispanics, you know, on farms and things, but um I'm just not convinced by the economic argument at all. I mean, it is, it's got some, it has some purchase in Britain for the Brexit vote, and it's got a little bit of an effect around voting for smaller yeah. populist right parties who might be on 10, 15%. Yes, it's got a little bit of an effect there, but okay. it's just not the story. This is a cultural story, I think. I know. But it's not about racism. This is the other thing. Ah. So a lot of academics will say this is about racism. And that I think is wrong as well. Okay, do this. This is very. This so, is so, so yeah, it's it's so that there's a very important distinction between hatred of the other and attachment to your own group. And people think these two things are linked, but they're actually usually not linked. So, for example, if I on the, the sort of leading American uh, political science survey asks how how warm do you feel towards white people on a zero to one hundred thermometer scale? and Hispanic people and black people and so on. So a white person who feels really warm towards white people does not feel cooler towards a black person or a Hispanic person than a white person who doesn't feel warm towards white people. And then, and it turns out that this is a finding that's been repeated over and over again in the psychology literature. If I hate my, or sorry, if I love my family intensely, that doesn't mean I hate my neighbors more. 
Now, if I am a Republican and I'm very attached to being a Republican, I do hate the Democrats more. So in that case, right. it's a zero-sum relationship. But on the race-ethnicity thing, it isn't. Hmm. And so what, what you've got in, in the, the voting for populists, most of it is not, I fear and hate the outsider, which is the way that it's often narrated in academia. It's much more about, I, this is what I'm used to. This is the country I know. This, you know, I don't want to see that change too quickly which is about, I think it's about attachment to something that you're losing. And in the academic literature, that has completely collapsed in with hating the other and fearing the other and thinking you're superior or wanting to have power over. And that's just not borne out, in my view, by careful evidence. I just don't think anybody, they don't want to acknowledge that this is a nuanced thing. Right. so that's what I have a problem with on the academic literature side. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm with you. I mean, it's nuanced and it's not. It's nuanced in that it is hostile. It is xenophobic in a sense, but it is not, it's not necessarily racist. Um, what they want, but it, it's not nuanced in this sense, make America great. They want, they have this image in their mind of an old America and they just want to go back to that. It's nostalgia. It's just simple nostalgia, isn't it? Uh, and, 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 I, and I think it's. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The old and the old America that they, they imagine is somewhere around the 1950s. I'm talking about in their heads. So black people are, are there, and so they're not. They're not for expelling black people from the United States. That would be a racist program. That would be a racist. Pro- which maybe that's in their mind somewhere, but they've certainly never. Trump has never said anything like that. Bannon has never said anything like that. Stephen Miller, none of them. So they want to go back now. Of course. Black people in the United States in the 1950s had some major problems that the MAGA crowd don't want to address. And does this mean you want to bring back segregation? I don't think so. But anyway, is that not it, though? Is it not just nostalgia? They want to go back to this, what they believe is a snapshot of an older society that, they, that they're somehow attached yeah, yeah. to? Yeah, but that's, that's what I mean, that this is the status quo conservatism yeah. of wanting to retain the country they know. Right. Which includes, you know, ethnic composition. That ethno traditionalism is part of that. You know, might also be, you know, there might be nostalgia about cultural things and TV programs and all kinds of other things. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, so that is definitely, I, I think, what is going on. But I think there's an important the black white, which is a sort of long running theme in American history, and you've had. <laughs> Indeed. (laughs) Post-civil rights, you had, you know, very clearly all kinds of issues. But I think there's a tendency in the academic literature to assume they they love to collapse the Trump phenomenon in with the old black, white, post-Nixon strategy stuff. And I think that's a mistake. I I really don't. This is not about, you know, they elected Obama twice. It is not about the black, white issue. And in fact, in the surveys, you can see that it's, it's attitudes around Hispanics that are much more tied to attitudes to immigration than your Correct. attitudes to black people. Correct. And the Trump phenomenon is much more about the newer Hispanic, to some degree Muslim, but generally to the Hispanic immigration and the border. It's not. It's not really the black-white issue around Obama. And even though there's a, they want to insist on this point, but if you look at the data, there's this gradual shift amongst non-college-educated whites. Um, who have high, you know, who have 
essentially have this, there's this term racial resentment, which is really kind of about racial progressivism. Mm -hmm. So non, people who think, for example, that African-Americans are poor because they're not working hard enough or because, you know, that they should work, essentially it's not about racism, it's about something else. That kind of voter would have been a Democrat, but each election, they, the white working class person with those views has shifted into the Republican Party. Now, that also happened between 2012 and 2016. So it kind of looks like that that's a motivation uh, for the Trump vote, but it isn't. It's just a continuation of a longstanding pattern. Um, yeah. What's really different is the, is, the, is the immigration, the impact of you know, people who really cared about immigration switched, and even if they were Obama voters. So I think that the whole ethnic change thing is more tied to Latinos, whereas the African-American share has not done anything. It's roughly where it's always been. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think that analysis that it's all about race and power. I mean, yeah, that issue has been there for a long time and there was no Trump. It's much more around the border and, and immigration. I think yeah. you're right. I think you're right. I mean, I am hyper attuned to the black white thing right. and I have never seen Trump get anywhere near it. Really, he just doesn't talk about black people. Bannon, same thing. They don't talk, except to talk about them as part of their movement. They talk about black working class people whose jobs are being taken by Mexican immigrants. They defend right. the discourse is 100% about black people. It's about them as workers who are losing out to Mexicans. That is right. all they talk about. And they also talk about Hispanic Americans losing their jobs to Mexican immigrants, too. So I, this bears out your thesis, I think. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I should be watching this show. I think. You should. I mean, there's a lot of repetition, and it's insanely corny. It is like boomer, it's like just boomerism off the chain. And oh, okay. Um, and some of it's you got to skip through because it's just you've, you've heard it before and it's boring. But man, I watch it and I feel like this is like there's this movement. It's this movement that's alive, that's big, it's powerful, and it's global. And whether you love it or hate it, you got to pay attention to it because it's just so big and it's not going away anytime soon. And also they offer, I think, really penetrating analyses of the other side, the religious left, right. which you described earlier. That's, I mean, I think those are the reasons that I get turned on by it. And I also, I think Bannon... You know, there's these individuals at the heart, like Farage, I think, is a fascinating character. I think the Le Pens are fascinating. I think Trump and Bannon especially, I'm just, there's something about them. They're fascinating figures in that they just stood up in the middle of this ocean of consensus around these issues and said, no, nah, I'm not going to do any of this. No, we don't agree with any of this. And the entire world came down on them, but they somehow managed to find others through just saying that and standing up. more <coughs> on them. Um, so yeah, that's I, right. I, 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 okay. Uh, now your, okay, let's do two things. I want to talk about replacement theory. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Tucker Carlson has been accused of recently. Oh no. I, I want to give you another piece of, uh, another kudo here. Another piece of evidence for your thesis. Do you remember when Trump called for police brutality? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when he said they should rough them up when on their way into the squad car, or whatever he said, like he he totally encouraged police to be extra legally illegally brutal, right? Who was he talking about? He was talking. Do you know? It was very specific. Do you know who, who he wanted police to rough up? 
No, I can't remember who it was. He could have easily. And back in the day, it would have been black criminals, right? Republicans would have been referring to Willie Horton, right? Right, right. Or someone like, right? Or in some way, they would have signaled that they were talking about black criminals. Oh, no. Trump was not at all talking about black people. He was talking not even about Latino people. He was talking about MS-13 members, the Salvadoran gang. He was very specific. Illegal migrants, outlaws, and that's what made them bad. And that's what that's why they needed to get roughed up. Not because of their race, but because they were here killing people and disrupting everything and had crossed the border illegally. So... I think that's well. Yeah, and I mean, there's very similar kinds of you know, immediate. This is with the religious left. It's the immediate leaping to racism as your default yeah. explanation that you right. have to prove that to be wrong. But if you can't prove it 100, percent it's the explanation, right? It's a bit like the both sides thing in Charlottesville was also. If you look at that carefully, oh, you yeah. know there were yes, of course there were awful people marching with these torches, but you also had some of these kind of southern historical preservation type, you know, but it's it's leapt on as, as sort of this grave thing. And, and now, of course, I do think Trump, you know, I think he said things which I would think are racist, but I think so I, I always say, you know, so kind of making it, and again, you can analyze the statement of Mexican, I think it was racist, but I think talking about the wall is racist, you know, it's just insane. Like countries have walls. That's what states do. They they try and protect their borders. So that's um again this stretching this what's known as a concept creep in the literature that's just going and expanding the meaning of racism to mean just about anything. Race for the left, for the American left, and maybe for I think the European left too, increasingly, because they're just they're aping the American left, I've noticed recently, is crack, man. It's like they can't they can't put down the pipe. It's unbelievable. It's so lazy. It's so dumb. Yeah. It's so flat. Uh, it's blunt. And they refuse to let it go. They just won't put down that crack pipe. It's too bad. Um, okay, now, replacement theory. So Tucker Carlson has been accused recently of touting replacement theory. And aren't you, too, touting replacement theory? Is well, your it's a bit like the the argument that, hey, the left talks about the browning of America. Isn't that replacement? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the Democrats are saying we will have a majority. Isn't that replacement? I mean, yeah, they are. You know, there is a a demographic phenomenon which can be accurately described uh, scientifically. Now you can spin that different ways. If you talk about browning of America, that's what is that? not replacement theory. I mean, so, yeah, right. I think that uh, now, of course, there is a, something called the great replacement, which is a kind of far-right argument that there's a conspiracy, hmm. often a Jewish conspiracy, to uh, flood the country with non-white people to make the whites, you know, so there is a kind of quite nasty... That's fringe. Uh, That's a fringe What's thing, that? though. That's fringe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that, and that, you know, usually the Jews are responsible... Um, but the, yeah, what, what people like, you know, Carlson, for example, is talking about is, I mean, he essentially is suggesting, I mean, I don't entirely agree with his argument. He's essentially suggesting that it's, it's electoral. It's just purely Democrats want to bring in as, as many people as possible because they will vote uh, Democrat. And, and so that's why they want to replace the electorate, which is not necessarily a racial thing, but I mean, it's, it's just a, a partisan thing. 
that happens to be correlated with race. Right. Now, of course, the left will seize on that as racism, and, and this is, but, but it isn't. But I, I disagree with him in the sense that I think Carlson is too Marxist in his argumentation. Yeah. Very much imagining a, a conspiracy that is sort of deliberate and it's about mm. wanting to bring in more voters. I actually think it's just people who have drunk the Kool-Aid of left modernism and mm. their highest value is anti-racism. And so, of course, um, they're going to be as liberal on immigration as possible. Mm. So I think it's much, again, now, I, I, again, I have a culturalist bias, but I think that is what the, what the data would bear out. I don't think there is this conspiracy. And I, and I don't think necessarily even the capitalist class Clearly, they want cheap labor, so I think there is truth to that. But I don't. This idea that this is all about a class conspiracy either. I don't necessarily. Again, it's that neo-Marxist analysis, which I don't really mm-hmm. think is well borne out with the evidence. Um, people will know from listening to you for more than an hour now, <laughs> or they will. They will not be surprised when I say that your your book is incredibly rich. It is full. So you have, you know, we've talked about this. You have. Uh, a very deep analysis and you did you did all sorts of um primary original statistical work right research for the book to explain this phenomenon yeah people i mean this book is really and i hate academics you know generally speaking i mean you got it's i have a very high bar (laughs) for academics and you you leapt over it no it's so you do that um you offer this very nuanced powerful rigorous analysis of why this is happening and what is happening. But then you also offer throughout the book a solution or at least a suggestion. I said, what you call multivocalism, multi, <laughs> multivocalism, many voices, right? And I, an ideal, an ideology of many voices. Now lay that out. And then, we, then I want to talk about you. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I sort of had this idea of a, I think ethnic majorities have a legitimate place in society. They should be able to express their ethnicity. Why are you so racist? Why are you so racist? Right. So in this black and white, you know, world where all the nuance is crushed out, that makes me racist. Um, But uh, I think it can be a kind of melting pot inclusive ethnic groups. And, And there are many examples around the world of such groups that can absorb outsiders and have blurry boundaries and 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 so i think that's sort of the ethnic part the melting pot side of the equation um of, of this white ethnic group that has porous boundaries but then you have the okay what about america the nation state that has to include everybody and, and that's a different level and, and so my view on that is that what you are never going to get everybody um you know from an African-American, a white American in Iowa somewhere, or a Chinese-American, to, to think of the country in exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on your ethnicity, your region, and especially your ideology, uh, you're going to have different versions of, of America in your head. And I don't think that's a problem. Uh, as long as you are looking at the same flag and, and the same name of the country and subscribing to certain values loosely defined – you can construct the rest of your national identity the way you want to. If you want to, if you think multiculturalism is the most important thing about America, you can believe that, and that's fine. But you also have to accept somebody else who maybe identifies with five generations on the land and and with the traditional ethnic composition of America as what they cherish, or the landscape, or something like that as their America. But 
Okay. There has to be mutual toleration. And right now, I don't think the toleration for that more ethno-traditional view of America is there. Um, and so I would, this idea of multivocalism is essentially different ways of being American or British or French or whatever. Um, not one hymn sheet, but it's like a menu. You can pick different items, but you're getting to the same destination in a different way. You talk a lot about Horace Callan. Uh, <laughs> Do I? I don't think I mentioned him too much. <laughs> uh, he is uh, 13. He's in your book 13 times, sir. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, okay. Sorry. That includes the notes. Um, okay. <laughs> you talk about him, certainly, because you're, you're also a big fan of Randolph Bourne. But um, anyway, Cal, you're, remind, you're reminding me of Horace Callan. So Horace Callan, for those who don't know, was a progressive at the turn of the tw- early 20th century in the United States, Jewish American. I believe he's an immigrant or his parents were. And I'm pretty sure this is right. He invented the whole concept of, ethni- of ethnicity. I don't know about invented ethnicity, but certainly multicult- the ancestor of uh, multiculturalism. I'm pretty sure he's the one who made the move from race to ethnicity that he sort of created or helped at least helped create this concept that was different than race. Right. Because before then, everything was just race, race, race. You're one race to the other. And he said, no, no, there's actually this other thing called ethnicity, which, you know, for me as a Jew, Jewish American, that's, you know, it was part of like the assimilation project. Right. Which wasn't full assimilation. It really sounds like you, Eric, which is like. Um, no, we're not a race, meaning we're not biologically fundamentally different than you people. We are an ethnicity, which means that some of our customs and traditions and language is different. And so we're cool. We can live together in this multicultural melting pot. Again, sounds very Kaufman-esque. Um, and that's exactly what happened, right? Jews became known. They were thought of as a race, a really, really separate, different, terrible race, in America, and after World War II, and ever since, they've been thought of as ethnic white Americans. Right. I mean, I have a, I have a slightly different take on Callan than you, in the sense okay. that he really he advocated for hermetically sealed ethnic. He's, he was no melt. He was reacting against the melting pot idea of Israel's Zangwa, which came. This is a book that came out in 1908 or 1910. Yeah. Right. And he, his was kind of a reaction against that, saying, no, men cannot change their grandfathers. They're going to stick to their culture. And because you can't change your grandfathers, you are what you are born as. And so his was more of a kind of what he called federation of international colonies. So in other words, each group maintaining itself in perpetuity in this salad bowl, but never mixing. Okay. So that was the Callan vision. But I actually think Callan was more consistent. So the, the reason I say, you know, hmm. Randolph Bourne, who I, I really think is a problem in many ways. So, so he is the ancestor of wokeness in the sense he's the one who sort what? of said, he says, you know, uh, the wasps should essentially be cosmopolitan. The, he, he, he borrowed from Callan the idea of the Jews sticking to, the, to, to themselves and maintaining their culture. So he wanted the minorities which were mainly the white ethnics, to keep their ethnicity. And he really hated anyone who assimilated. He called them cultural half-breeds. But he wanted the wasps to get away from their culture and ethnicity. So he had what I call asymmetrical multiculturalism, whereas at least Callan said, no, no, the wasps should do their thing and keep their thing. So he was actually willing to acknowledge the value of that group, even though I, I don't agree with his sort of salad bowl metaphor, but 
Not that he used that metaphor, but he he was right. essentially a multiculturalist. Uh, but I think he was more consistent multiculturalist than Bourne, uh, who maybe because Callum was Jewish, and so he didn't feel that he had to divest himself of his ethnicity the way Bourne did. But it's, yeah, so multicultural, but not multiracial. Again, I think this move to ethnicity is really crucial for your work and for everything here, right? Once you take it, once you take it out of biology, then everything, then anything's possible. Then anything is possible. Once, once you say that black people or Jewish people or whoever are not fundamentally biologically different, then they can become just like us or they can have their own thing, their own ethnicity, their own customs, right? So you've got to de-biologize it. Right, but yeah. Well, it's, it's, you have ancestry, which is a, but, you know, yeah. the ancestral line, you, you could be Jewish, well, you know, you could have the, that ancestral line, but then there's obviously going to be a whole bunch of other stuff in there. Right? So, so it's, it's about ancestry, but no, I think the, the issue with Born, I, I guess with both Callan and Born, I, I think are suboptimal. The kind of people, and I think race was just used as a term for, like the French race, the Italian, I mean, that was the term for ethnicity until, I mean, the term ethnicity, I think, was invented. 1960 actually um, really I'm pretty sure yeah okay yeah, so that, that's but the, not but, the, but the concept I, I count my my old friend Vic, uh god what's her name <laughs> yeah. victoria had victoria hadam has written a book on this h-a-t-t-a-m she was uh my colleague at the new school she wrote a whole book about this i believe this is the this is our argument that he introduced the concept of ethnicity different from race but i could be wrong anyway yeah yeah you know the people i think who had the fluid flexible the idea of of race were in the 19th century uh midnight like people like uh, emerson uh who who say who would say you know the u.s is more english than the, than the english and then he'd say um the foreign element however large but rapidly assimilated like a lot of these anglo-saxonists believed that the irish and the germans and these groups were more or less be overwhelmed and melt in. They had a more oddly, even though they obviously had certain views which were racist, for example, but they they, they also had this view of kind of like melting where where race and kind of, kind of more cultural and less biological. That kind, okay. of, kind of comes in in the late 19th century. Okay. Uh, by the way, speaking of the Anglo-Saxonists, my favorite yeah. people, they're just hilarious <laughs> to read. Um yeah, people don't. A lot of people don't know this. The racism of the 19th century was even more particular and specific. It was Anglo-Saxonism. Uh, that's right. that's who that's who the great racist of the 19th century talked about was the Anglo-Saxons. You know who just mentioned Anglo-Saxons um, recently in a? I think it was a formal some form, formal document. It might have even been in a congressional bill. I believe Marjorie Taylor Greene. I know. I heard that. Yes. I heard Holy that. Christ. I, I, <laughs> when I saw her do that, I said, you're not supposed to do that, MTG. You're dummy. Dummy. <laughs> Go back to Georgia. Come back with a better theory. You're not supposed to cross that line. They're so unaware of the history. They don't even know what they're doing here. Um, yeah, yeah. So multivocalism, back to this. So you're yeah, yeah. what you would like to see. Am I right? So you would like to see for it to be okay culturally, right? For, for ethnic majorities to be ethnic majorities and to, and to even celebrate and embrace their identity as such, right? Right, yeah. But, but you say the word I think you use over and over is open. You want these tribes to be open. And, and, and that means open to what? Well, mainly open to intermarriage, I guess, because, yeah. you know, you, and, and around the world there are ethnic groups that are sealed shut. 
that that are very sort of they, they won't marry outside the group. You know, Northern India, Hindu Muslim. There's no mixing there across that line, or Northern Ireland, the Protestant Catholic line. These are really rigidly <laughs> enforced. You know, prescriptions against intermarriage. But then you have other groups that are where there's a lot more intermarriage. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking of Turks and Kurds in Turkey, or uh, you know, Afro Caribbeans and Indians in Trinidad. You know, mm-hmm. so there are different models. Yeah, right. and, and in Africa, a lot of groups. There's a lot of absorption into different groups. So, so I kind of think you can have ethnicity with fuzzy boundaries or with very hard boundaries. Okay. All I'm talking about is a kind of liberal ethnicity. Okay. And the key is about the sense and belief in the collective memories. Okay. All of which you think is inventions, though, fictions, right? Mythology, don't yeah. you? Yeah. I mean, yeah. they are. <laughs> of course, there's some relationship to... But you want to, def- but you want to defend it anyway? You want to defend it anyway? You want to defend it anyway, even though it's all made up nonsense? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, well, it's made up nonsense as much as anything's made up. I mean, these things are constructed, but yeah. constructs people become attached to Indeed. being American or being, you know, white American, whatever. Um, and then that kind of serves to reproduce culture. So culture kind of in some ways piggybacks on this belief in common ancestry, which maybe more or less true. It's actually relatively true, but it's sort of not always true. So I think Oriental Jews and European Jews in some, I think I, I might be corrected on this. I think Oriental Jews are closer to Arabs genetically than European Jews, you know, but doesn't matter from the perspective of ethnicity. It's that common belief in common ancestry. So, yeah, I mean, of course, these things are, ideologies at some level, right? Um, yeah. Which are yeah. passed down and transmitted. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And you don't want to decouple people from that tendency to mythologize their their past? Their well, you could past. say, you know, you could say family and, and is an ideology. You know, you could say extended families. I mean, anything is, you know, yes, there's biological relatedness, but it's also, you could choose to not care about family, yeah. And certainly not care about extended family. So all of these things are about, do you think that, is that important to you or is it not important to you? Again, there's a lot of this is hereditary, you know, mm-hmm. for some people, this is very important. And, and there's a, a high, you know, a genetic component to that. Some people are just more attached to those kinds of bonds than others. And there's no right or wrong. Yeah, um, good point. I think, uh, I think it has value and it's partly about reproducing cultures, which does provide a lot of, I mean, in a way, the cosmopolitans, you know, and I I do want there to be room for cosmopolitans. I don't want them to be persecuted. They they, they should be free to be cosmopolitans. But the reality is that they are parasitic also on these ethnics who are producing these cultures that they're consuming. So, Mm. you know, there's a, there's a, 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 an anthropologist Norwegian who has this term, you can't have cosmopolitans without locals. And, and what he's sort of saying is That's, they are looking for authenticity wow. and that authenticity is being produced by <laughs> these groups who are attached to their own culture. So That's you need brilliant. both. Okay. Uh, and you can't, it's very schizophrenic to kind of say, well, you know, I really love this, oh, this really authentic village I was able to go to in Thailand but at the same time, oh, I hate these nativists. You know, but actually, yes. maybe there's a relationship there. That's Let's, right. That's brilliant. Okay, that's really brilliant. Yeah. Well put together. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, that's really fun. Okay. 
<laughs> so, um, speaking of Oriental Jews, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I read your whole book without knowing anything about you at all, except that you taught at Birkbeck College in London. That's all I knew, and I I don't know why I chose to do it that way. I didn't. I don't know what was going on, but I did it, and then and then I finished the book, and then I looked you up on Wikipedia, and I got you. Sir, you you wrote a book. You wrote a book about yourself. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> so you were born. Am I right? You were born in Hong Kong. Your yeah, dad, my dad was. So my dad was in the Canadian uh, diplomatic service uh-huh. and was posted to China. Who and he actually was in China. Saw the Cultural Revolution uh, wow. briefly. Wow. wow. And um, but but yeah. So I was born in Hong Kong, but I only lived like a year, I guess, there. And then we moved to Japan, where I lived for another. I guess six years, okay. and then, then before before I even went to Canada to live at all. Um, but of course, I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't Chinese or Japanese culturally, or you know, I always was in a kind of international environment. Right. Uh, but that, of course, awakens an interest in in nationhood, right? So this is where it begins. Yeah. Um, is you see your your own country in a, in a different lens. Yeah. Um, and, and so. If I'd just grown up somewhere in the middle of Saskatchewan or something, then I think probably I'd never had this interest. That's right. You have a very international mind, I will say. You do. You do. I mean, you really, your mind crosses borders really fast, like much more than mine does. Because I'm, I'm right. not only have I always lived here, but I've studied the U.S. and all that. But, but okay. So, but your dad's Jewish, right? Yeah, he's. Uh, he would be you welcome know, to bo- the from Bohemia, Jew- Central European kind of Jewish background, sort of. Okay. Secular bourgeois type Jews, you know, Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, typical Ashkenazi Jew. Very much, yeah. And they got out. You know, my grandfather escaped out of Czechoslovakia in nineteen thirty-eight. You know, so that's why I'm here. You know, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. but uh, but yeah, so that's kind of is lovely, my, a lovely my place side. to be. And then my mom, who who he met in Hong Kong, who's half uh, Spanish, you know, half Costa Rican and wow. half Chinese. So that's sort of, Macau is where where she's from, which is a Portuguese colony now turned, I mean, it's, I think it's part of China now. Um, sort of the Las Vegas of the Orient. Yeah, it's where all the, where all the gambling goes on. I know that. Yeah. So yeah. She, I didn't know she was Costa, half Costa Rican. I knew she was. Oh, yeah, half. yeah. So I got, I get, get a maybe a few points for for Latino. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you do. Of course you do. So, so technically, I mean, it, these are all so silly, but whatever. Like according to North American standards, you're, you're, we would say you're half Jewish, one quarter Chinese, and one quarter Latino or Hispanic. Yeah, right. That's right. That's correct. Yeah. Um, and but you were and and you were also born in Hong Kong then lived in Japan and then lived in Vancouver, Canada. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. And and now you teach in London. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. you're, uh, you're, you're what we've been talking about. Right. And, sure. <laughs> but you know, what's interesting yeah, is, is there's always, there's always been this relationship between uh, kind of cosmopolitanism or at least people who move around and that can, you can go one of two, you know, typically people can either become more interested in, in issues of nationhood or they can, embrace although i still think the true globalist the true cosmopolitan has to be someone who grows up in a small town you know isn't allowed to go anywhere or or grows up in a country and doesn't move around much and then they they oh really yearn to to move around you know that is where the energy behind 
cosmopolitanism comes from, I think. Oh, yeah? Huh. Interesting. Now, what about your identity formation? This will be my last question for you. Yeah, yeah, of Was course. This, I mean, you know, for someone like me, white guy from America, like I never sat there and thought, what am I? Gee, right. let me, gosh, should I choose to be white or should I choose to be? I mean, there was a little bit because I'm part Jewish also. I mean, tiny bit. I was like, am I Jewish a few times? But it never was that Right. Interesting, interesting a question for me. But how about for you? I mean, was it something that you wrestled with? Was it an issue? Was it a problem? Well, I, I think absolutely, or else I wouldn't have studied all this, right? Aha. So, okay, good. I was yeah, right. Because, so first of all, just growing up abroad where clearly, you know, in Japan, if you don't look Japanese, you know, the kids, I don't know if this still goes on, but they point at you and call you a foreigner. Not, it's not a nasty thing, but they, or sometimes it would get a little bit, but it's not bad. Okay. Um, but, you know, so clearly you, you were aware of being different. And then I went to kind of an international school where you had an international day where everyone would have their tent from where they're from. And, you know, so there'd be the Australians and their barbecue and the Canadians probably also with their barbecue. But you know, you'd have these tents. And so, yeah, it just gets you more interested in, in oh, who am I nationally? Because there are all these other people that are from... 50 countries and and so so that's the beginning of, of that interest um and i was moved to vancouver and then i was in japan again for a couple of years mm. um, but then there's also now in terms of the kind of ethnicity well you know i was in suburban vancouver and and i don't know if you've been to vancouver but the north shore which is kind of the one of the kind of waspier parts of I mean, the, the, the area of Vancouver, essentially the further out you go, the more, the less diverse it is. But certainly the North Shore was more of the kind of middle, upper middle class kind of very waspy kind of part of Vancouver. So, you know, these would have been my classmates. And clearly I was different from most of them, not having a surname like Smith or Mackenzie, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, and also my, my mom clearly wasn't white looking. And, you know, so there, there, there's going to be certain questions arising out of that. And then, of course, you have uh, Vancouver, which is going through this rapid ethnic shift. There's a lot of the cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco. And oh, yeah. it's, in, in Vancouver's case, it's Asian immigration happening. Yeah. And so that's part of the mix, too. And um, yeah, so I would say these questions were, were, I was never in a situation where you had kind of, I was one of, of every, you know, the same as everybody else. And, and it was all stable. And you know, I think if I was in that situation, it wouldn't be something I'd study. So your your mother, by no one's standards, is white. Right. Your, your dad, Jewish people, have only really been considered white by the consensus since World War II. <laughs> so recently white. Yeah. But but how do you identify, or do you identify when when you have to check that damn box? You know, on right. all the on all the questionnaires, what do you check off? Well, you know, I mean, basically, <laughs> I'm white because. Of the way I I look, that, that you know, you people can certainly see the the East Asian, but you you would only pick that up really if you were talking to me, and and, and so it's not as though, you know, that's kind of what I've been. You know, I'm not wasp, you know, but I'm kind of white, you know, but but I might tick mixed race sometimes, although generally I just probably tick white. But um, so huh. I'm probably right at the boundary line, right, of what you would, of what the definition is. And so, but, but yeah, so that's probably where I am. Um, I, but, I, you know. 
I think it's a mistake. I think you should choose Costa Rican from now on. I think you should <laughs> identify as, I mean, it's the coolest country. I mean, you want to be from it's Costa Rica. It's great. I love it. I visited there for the first time a few years ago. And, um, but, but the part of the problem is, of course, I don't have any, I didn't grow up in a kind of Chinese or Costa Rican community or actually even a Jewish community, but, uh, right. Of course. Right. Which is part of the reason that it's, it's, it's hard to easily attach to, to these things, but I suppose Jewish would be the thing I'd be sort of more 50%. So that closer to that. Yeah. Um, sure. but yeah, when you get mixed, like it, it's like a lot of Americans who are kind of a quarter Irish and a quarter Italian and a quarter this and that. Mm-hmm. Right. And, it's difficult to to know which one. It's not that meaningful. I, I the joke when I was in Boston was the less Irish someone is, the more likely they are to call their kid Sean or Seamus or something. <laughs> of course, right? <laughs> to get to get some authenticity because you know yeah. white people don't have a culture, right? Right, right. So I mean, it, it becomes meaningful when you make the choice, though. When you make the choice to identify, that's when it becomes meaningful. Until then, you're a free agent like Eric Kaufman. You've basically been a free agent. Sounds yeah. Like. Yeah, 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 that's right, and and that's but but there is a certain dynamic to to a certain extent to which I think with I mean Richard Alba, the sociologist of, of ethnicity, you know, he sort of says, I think the way he put it was that all this mixing does not lead to ethnic revival. It, it does it diminishes ethnicity in a way when you're one sixteenth a whole bunch of things. Yeah, it gets a bit forced. I mean, it's sort of very difficult. Now you can still identify. I mean, you absolutely can identify, by the way. But the other thing we see in the in the surveys is, you know, the more the stronger you identify as Italian or as mm-hmm. Irish or mm-hmm. German, let's say, the more likely you are to identify as white, because actually all you're doing is identifying with an outer layer of. So if the Irish is the inner layer, then the pan ethnic thing that you share with the Italian and the Greek is is a white outer layer, and so yeah. that's the main explanation for why people might identify as white or if they're Cuban or Puerto Rican, why they identify as Hispanic. So they, their strongest identity is Cuban, but if they're really into Cuban, they're much more likely to be into Hispanic as right. an identity. I just changed my mind. You should know, you should not absolutely not identify as uh, Costa Rica, Costa Rican. You should identify as Chinese because apparently they're going to take over the world. According <laughs> According to Steve Bannon, anyway, that's all I know. I, I just watched Steve Bannon. He's telling me the CCP is going to take over the world. So you probably want to be on their side. That might be <laughs> most advantageous. Hey, I wanted to say this has been just a pure blast, totally fun. I love your mind. I love it the way I love your book, even though I don't agree with every single jot in it. I think it's a powerful, persuasive, incredibly rigorous, by the way, also very clearly written. So oh, thank you. everybody here will benefit from reading it. I have thought about these issues extensively, as people know, for decades, and I got a lot from it, from every page. Every page, you'll see it's rich with information and analysis. So it's a really fantastic piece of work, and uh, you're a lot of fun to talk to. That, that has been, been a slice. I mean, it's been a fantastic conversation, and thanks for all the kind words. You are more than welcome, and I'd love to talk to you again sometime. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Let's do something. Thank you, Eric. Have a great day. Thanks a lot, Thad. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is the Unregistered Podcast, and I'm Thaddeus Russell.